So today we're continuing with eight essential elements of the Biblical Christian Gospel series. We have been on element uh, six for a while. This is element 6A. Element 6 is called Receiving Jesus Christ or Responding to the Gospel. Please note that those are action verbs. So those are action words. And uh, uh, you, uh, I shouldn't have said verbs, but they're action words. But... um, what, what's important about that is, uh, you know, uh, the gospel is for everyday life, as we've stressed in this church for quite a few years now. And uh, the gospel has to be received afresh every day. You don't get born again every day. Uh, and there's a, kind of a line between whether you're being more thoroughly converted or starting to be sanctified and matured. But uh, we need to turn to Christ and walk in the power of his resurrection every day. As Paul said in Galatians 2.20, it's not I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I live in this body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. We need to learn to live out of the power of his resurrection by the power of his Holy Spirit. And uh, so, uh, this is element 6K in receiving Jesus Christ. We've been looking so far. I don't know how uh, when we'll turn the corner on this, and we may not, because this this uh, c- kind of covers a lot of what uh, the idea of how to receive Jesus Christ is, is contained in these words. But we're looking at biblical vocabulary. One of the uh, tragedies of our day is that uh, all of us, our reading skills have gone down as a culture. They say the average American reads uh, less than two books a year, and that's counting in all the people who read no- romance novels and mystery novels and so forth. And the truth of the matter is the average American doesn't read any books at all. And uh, so um, when, when you uh, come out of uh, the world and into Christ, you need to lear- lean, learn a whole new spiritual vocabulary as Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 2, we do speak uh, wisdom among those who are mature, but we don't speak a wisdom according to this world. Combining, We combine spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. So, um, you know, we're, we've been going through the, uh, the vocabulary of salvation, and we started with receive, because our key verse here is, but to all who did receive him... Uh, who believed in his name, he gave the authority, or exousia, to become the children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So it's important to emphasize that these things are initiated by God. All, all progress in the Christian life is initiated by God, but we have to re- respond and receive. And it's actually his grace that changes our hearts to be able to respond and receive. But part of his grace is delivering that word to us through through the teachers and, and scriptures that God has put in the church. So uh, in elements, look at Roman numeral 5 there. These are some of the words we've looked at so far, saved, salvation, receive, deliver, conversion, new birth, you know, uh, renounce, contriteness, confession, conviction, and so forth. And uh, four weeks ago, we began looking at the word repentance. And uh, this should be the final week, week on, uh, in fact, we're moving on from repentance today. Last week was the final work, week on repentance. However, uh, all the words we've covered kind of in this section, like conviction, confession, contrition, and t- today's two words, if we get that far, renounce and restitution, all have to do with what it means to repent. 
if you wanted to put one overriding biblical concept on them, that's why you'd put the word repent. That's why Peter, in his Acts 2 sermon, when in, in verse 36, when they realized the, the essence of the message of his sermon, that all Jews had been e- eagerly waiting for two things to happen, Yahweh with us, the Lord with us, or Emmanuel, and the coming of the Messiah in Hebrew, or Christos in Greek, Mashiach in Hebrew, and, uh, and, and he had come, and they had killed him and not recognized him because their religious paradigms had so many wrong things as we, uh, as we maybe have worse in the church today, but certainly equal. Um, we're so, uh, so off base that, that people couldn't recognize God in their very midst. And that's so important. You know, Jesus said, you won't see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's true of Jesus, but that's also true of those who Jesus sends. Jesus will send people to you in your life. And they will usually uh, have a word that of conviction, a word of admonishment or reproof that requires confession, contrition, repentance, that requires becoming a whole new person and going a whole new direction. And that will happen at various times in your Christian life. And that, that happened to, if you're in Christ today, that happened to get you started in Christ. And your response to God is your response to the person he sends you. Even if you don't like the package, you know, a lot of uh, who influenced me to come to the Lord in the first place and, uh, and taught me how to cast out demons and get delivered from demons myself and get started in the Christian faith and value God's word and so forth was my parents. And I, up till then, had a pretty lousy relationship with them, and, uh, uh, which was probably more my fault than theirs, it, uh, at, at least it, certainly at lots of times. And uh, so, and, uh, you know, my mom wasn't the easiest person to learn from, but she was, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord for, for uh, the first several months of my Christian life. And it was only, that role only changed over the next year or two as I uh, really grew in the Lord and began to understand a lot of things that they didn't understand. But they got me started on the right direction in quite a few ways. So, uh, last four weeks we've been looking at repentance. I'm not going to review Roman numeral 6a has eight key words about repentance. And uh, and, uh, then we talked about repentance versus, you know, false repentance versus true repentance. We called false repentance remorse uh, and so forth. So uh, a good verse that I don't think I even emphasized on remorse. Let's read the last verse on the page, then we'll get started on today's material. For 2 Corinthians 7.10, Paul says, For the sorrow that's according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. And remember, we emphasize that false repentance is always about the consequences of your behavior. It's about preserving your uh, reputation. It's about defensiveness. Uh, If there's anything that you know about our culture and generation, and C.S. Lewis pointed this out in the 50s, is we're increasingly becoming a culture that defines love as, as, as... not only acceptance, but hearty encouragement of all behaviors, all motivations, all attitudes, all the time, except for loving God and following Christ. But uh, uh, and um, so uh, and that has bred a culture where most people have cultivated a way of life that's incredibly self-protecting in, in the sense of defensiveness, 
which will keep you far from the kingdom of God. So let's flip over and get into today's things. Uh, we're going to look at two words, hopefully. We'll get that far. Uh, in point 7a, we're going to look at the word renounce or renunciation. And in point uh, 7b, we're going to look at restitution. Now, renounce, I'm going to, before defining it, uh, it, it renounces a verb and renunciation is a noun. But before doing that, I'm going to read a few scriptures. Second uh, uh, Corinthians uh, 4.2 says, We have renounced uh, the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Now, uh, I decided that the ESV and the NET versions had enough uh, words that would make you think slightly different to include them on your outline. Um, or no, I took them off your outline. They're on my outline. <laughs> I forgot I have a little longer outline. It goes on to three pages, but um, you might want to note that those those are worth looking up. Uh, you know, instead of hidden, the ESV says underhanded. Uh, NET says hidden, uh, you know, not a tampering the word or deceptiveness or distorting the word and so forth. So uh, that's really a really important principle of Christianity. When Jesus was on trial, he said, I spoke openly in the marketplace, ask the people what I said. When Paul was on trial before Agrippa and and King and Felix, King Agrippa and Felix, he said, uh, King Agrippa, do you know the prophets? He goes, then he says, these things were not spoken at a corner. The whole world knows what we teach. As Christians, we're here to take over the world for the glory of God and the Lord Jesus Christ by the power of a conquering sword of, of men's hearts. Not by, you know, we renounce all military action and, and all that kind of stuff. Uh, we, are, we are here to spread the kingdom of God through the power of the Holy Spirit and the gospel. And we are to, to bring everyone into reconciliation and disciple them into deep in relationship with God and God's always had a purpose to have a covenant people and to live the, the kind of community lifestyle we live here is what God intends for every Christian. That's very clear in Scripture. So, um, uh, you, know, that, you know, one of the th most important things about renouncing things, we're going to see that it's done always has to be uh, publicly and formally and verbally. Because, uh, because in, we have no hidden agenda. Now, this is not to say that God hasn't given spheres of life like your family finances are between you, God, and whoever God would, might, might want you to open them up to enough to get some help or whatever. But not, you know, they're not for everybody. You're, you know, you're, you know, obviously your physical relationship with your wife is between you and God, and uh, maybe occasionally it's uh, someone uh, who's wise enough to help you there, uh, if, if need be, and, uh, and so forth. But uh, so, you know, there are things that are intended to be secret, but as, as a church and as the, as the body of Christ, we have no hidden agenda. We're here to bring the glory of God as the knowledge covers the seas to all the earth. That's what we're working toward. 
Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's not only our prayer, but our commission. And when everything is perfectly under the reign of Jesus Christ, then the world will have peace. And false religions have that same concept. If you study Islam, they like you'll you'll hear certain politicians <clears throat> that uh, don't know too much about too much, uh, unfortunately, because you, you know you can be very educated and still be very blind if you know if you don't know the Lord. But certain politicians in both parties have said over the last. Uh, 15 years since the 9-11 uh, thing, and even before then, uh, that uh, Islam is a religion of peace. But we define peace in the Bible when people have been reconciled to God voluntarily, when they have joined his covenant people voluntarily, and when they've come under the conviction of a very powerful sword, the sword of his word, and chosen to, to be disciples of the Lamb. Uh, Islam defines peace when, when everyone is brought under political subjection, uh, when everyone is either converted to Islam or they're brought under complete sub political subjection, uh, a, a word that uh, Bat Yor and, and Diane West, Diana West and certain authors have called diminitude, when, when everyone who's not following Muhammad uh, will pay special taxes and be reduced like the Gibeonites in the Old Testament to being woodcutters. And in other words, to do the lowliest and most menial tasks, to not have the office work or, or have positions in universities or, or any other thing, but just to be the lowliest of servants. When everyone that's not in Islam becomes the lowliest of servants or is, to, or is killed or, uh, or converts to Islam, uh, and they believe you can convert people by the sword, uh, and that's the true teaching of the Quran, by the way. Like you always hear in the media that that's just the, the teaching of a few renegade few. If you study the, the commentaries on the Quran from ver the very beginning in the 7th century, you'll see uh, that uh, they, they right away had a principle that the Quran's full of, of contradictions. So whatever Muhammad said later is always to be taken as the, as the real truth. And all of the jihad and military statements and so forth is from the later part of the Quran. All true Muslims, there are, just like today, there are nominal Christians who are more secular humanists than they are Christian, and I pray to God we are, by his grace, becoming less of that. Um, there are lots of Muslims that are, that are nominal Muslims who are mostly Western-educated secular humanists. Those are, those, those are great Muslims. I have a great Muslim friend who's also the locksmith for our church and for my house and, and my other properties and so forth. Uh, and he's a great guy, but, uh, but he's a nominal Muslim. Uh, if you really believe in it, you're going you're gonna to follow that way to peace. Anyway, and they have no hidden agenda either, by the way. <laughs> so, uh, you know. We uh, believe that if you don't bow the knee, Jesus will eventually help you bow it. They believe that uh, if you don't bow the knee, they'll help you bow it. <laughs> All right, so uh, moving on, Luke, and, you know, and that's just the truth. Uh, you know, our media doesn't want to say that because it's not politically corrected, but it just is the, the, the actual teachings of uh, Islam. And I've read a, enough on the subject to, to know what I'm talking about. Luke 14, 25 through 35, we uh, aren't going to read it all. 
But it says, Now large crowds were going along with him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and his wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, he even, and yes, and even his own life, he can, cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Uh, then he goes on to talk about the pro, you know, counting the cost to build a bridge and counting the cost uh, it for to go into battle. And then he says, so then, uh, as a result of the, the what I've said before and these illustrations, so then none, no one, not a single person of you can be my disciples if who does not give up all of his own possessions. Therefore, salt is good, but if even salt has become tasteless, what will happen? What will be uh, with what will it be seasoned? It is useless either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, those go uh, together, and people like don't realize the train of thought here. But the train of thought is, uh, basically, this is a great definition of renunciation. Even though it doesn't specifically use that word. And, uh, and he's basically saying there's physical laws in the universe and their spiritual laws, and uh, you'll you'll be able to break uh, that law when you can get a running start off of a high building and start and flap your arms hard and fly, uh, which many people on drugs have done, unfortunately. But uh, uh, you cannot break the law of gravity. You cannot break the you know, laws of inertia or reflection or any any you know whatever. Likewise, you cannot break God's laws. And the law is, if you don't uh, hate your own father and mother, children, you can't be the disciple. That's period. Uh, whoever does not carry his own cross cannot be my disciple. You know, you really, one thing you ought to do is sometimes step back and say, how well do I embrace the crosses God puts in my life every day? Like when you're in a hurry and some slow person's in front of you. <laughs> uh, um, or when God sends Officer Diaz to you. Uh, I didn't embrace that cross very well. Uh, so uh, to give you the first speeding ticket you've had in 20 years. But, uh, um, you know, and uh, it, it's, it's simply that. Uh, that's, that's the truth. Now, the relationship is this. What we have for the most part in Christianity today is people who haven't formally renounced things. We have people that are still saving pictures or rings from a, from a former relationship. We have pe people that still uh, cherish memories in their hearts. We have people that have occult items, books, and so forth in their house, and from movies to books to, to everything else. Uh, people who have various kinds of occult books uh, you know, music in their house and, and everything else. And you, the word hidden means occult. That's what, uh, what occult means. It's the hidden secret arts. And, you know, what we do is we have all kinds of relationships that are what uh, those of us who know work with uh, casting out demons call soul ties. Uh, we have lots of illegal soul ties. We have lots of relationships that we haven't thought through in, in light of what Jesus just said about hating your father, mother, and so forth. Now, do I think you're supposed to actively ha hate and, and come against your father and mother? You're really supposed to think about it. 
to that level because you, what you need to understand is you become part of the family of God. Now, if you happen to be blessed like I was to have parents who uh, were followers of Christ and deep followers of Christ, I was still able to have a pretty decent relationship with them. All of my brothers and sisters have a nominal, uh, at least go to church kind of relationship with Christ. Uh, so I'm able to have some relationship with them. But even with my parents having a Christian bookstore, having a ministry of casting out demons, my mom wrote a book about spiritual gifts and so forth, my parents, within one or two years of being a Christian, they began to say, you know, I think you're taking this community and biblical studies, you're taking all this stuff way too serious. You know, you're going too far. And, you know, um, I always honored and respected them, but I went on with the people God had called me to walk with and the purposes God had called me to do. That, that is what Jesus is after. You have to be in comparison for your love for him, and that necessarily means your love for his word. If you don't love his word, you don't love him, and it necessarily means your love for for commitment in, in, the, in his community. You have to have a local expression of the body of Christ that you understand the vision of and that you are cooperating with and serving and giving to and praying for and, and uh, being involved in all the time. That you can't walk with God without that. Like Cyprian said in the fourth century, there's, there's no salvation apart from the church. So, uh, that's what Jesus means by these statements. You have to take up your cross. That means your will. What, did, what was the key thing that Jesus said in the Garden of Gethsemane to prepare himself for the cross? Not my will, but thy will be done. Right? And uh, too many of us uh, live still in my will about too many things. And so, you know, you have to ask God, keep bringing trials, keep bringing situations, keep bringing further biblical revelation, keep bringing the cross of Christ into my life because there's no life before death. There's Eternal life is, implies death. You have to live on the other side of the cross. Eternal life's not about going to heaven. Uh, that's an ultimate byproduct, but it's about dying daily and knowing the Lord deeply and being powerfully filled with his spirit. You know, many Christians today have never cast out a demon or, per, or prayed for anyone that was dramatically healed or, or had words of prophecy or, or discernment of spirits and so forth. That's not normal in the Bible. That's just become normal because we have, we've been trained in, a Democrat, in, the, in the religion of democracy to believe whatever's the majority of Christians doing is the normal. But that's not normal according to the Bible. The church is incredibly abnormal right now, maybe more so than any other period of its history. We need a reformation, beyond a reformation, to a restoration more than what the church had in the 14th, 15th century uh, and leading into the 16th century reformation. We, you know, the church today is further away from biblical reality than that, at least in the West. So... Um, that uh, is a couple of scriptures to introduce renunciation. Let's give you a definition. Uh, to publicly and formally reject, like, yeah, ah, ah, no, get off me. <laughs> you know, like, get, like, fly, like, you got to treat sin and, 
illegal relationships and whatever is not in the will of God, like it's flypaper that you're trying to get rid of and you want to burn it. And all mementos of it, any books, any, any artifacts, any things that would remind you of being outside of Christ. That the, the church, the, the tie-in to when Jesus says, if the, um, uh, if the salt is good, or uh, salt is good, but even if it has become tasteless, what will it be seasoned? Salt stops corruption. And what Jesus is saying is the church will lose its savor if every one of us does, it doesn't it give up his own possessions. It's thrown out. It's good for the manure pile. That's really, you know, today's contemporary uh, Christianity is full of scubalon, according to the Bible. And, uh, in, uh, you know, like if you step in it, uh, you usually want to like go, oh, like you want to clean off your shoes before you take them in the house, <laughs> you know. And, uh, you know, but the church just lives in a pool of it and thinks that's because everyone else is in the pool. That's probably okay. It's normative, but it's not. Uh, so uh, going on again to formally reject, give up, disown, disavow, a covenant word. Think it's, it's to break covenants, break ties and covenants, and to separate from. It's an act or declaration of relinquishing, abandoning, repudiating, or sacrificing such things as your rights, titles, person or persons, relationships, ambitions, priorities, beliefs, or associations. If, it were, if we're talking computer language, uh, the metaphor would be to have no shared files or no connectivity. Like, I don't have a phone to get in touch with this. I don't have text to get in touch with this. I don't have Facebook to get in touch with this. I don't have a way to send an email. Uh, we can't Skype. There is no, uh, nothing that has to do with this world in me anymore. That's what the baptismal formula that we read, uh, was it a week ago or two, two weeks, whatever. What's that? One week. We, you know, like, do you renounce Satan? That's always been part of the church's baptism. You have to renounce Satan sin, the world system, and all of its associations, relationships, covenants, ideas, and doctrines. And you have to have no connectivity to that. Now, that's the, the trick of it because God has called us to be in the world, but, he, but you cannot be any of the world. When Paul uh, starts his letter to the Ephesians and several other letters, he says... Uh, Paul, a bond or no, not in Philippians, he says bond servant. In Ephesians, he just says an apostle of Jesus Christ. But the words of Jesus Christ are Jesu and Christu, and that are in the case that means of, meaning belonging to, possessed by, owned by, controlled by. And I, I will tell you that every problem you face usually comes down to things in your spirit, life, and heart, and attitudes, and motivations that aren't owned by Jesus Christ yet. And where there are completing claims to the ownership. 
most Christians live there in this culture way too much. And that fact, that's been one of my hardest things in learning to be more gracious and patient and so forth, is it's normative in the Bible to become born again and converted, which, that, which is receive Jesus Christ, that, to be water baptized, to be baptized in the Holy Spirit, and to be delivered from demons with at least inner healing, if not physical healings, and uh, delivered from all soul ties, demonic spirits, and so forth. And we've come to a culture where our Christianity is so anemic, and we're still struggling to have more anointing. I appreciate those. I've asked a certain group of people to pray uh, two extra times a week with me, and we're having kind of a two- or three-hour prayer meeting twice a week to just try to call down the Spirit of God on this church. Because our Christianity is so anemic that uh, it takes us one and two and three years sometimes to get, and sometimes people have been in, in this church for, you know, we've had people over 10 years that are still not ready to go through deliverance. Because you can't get delivered from your friends. You can't get delivered from things you have in your heart and you love. And people want to, you know, people actually that are spiritually sensitive will sometimes notice that they're being harassed by demons and, and, and even influenced by demons and that some of their behavior is demonic and so forth, but they don't want to go deeper to the level of making sure they renounce the roots of these things. And, uh, and uh, you know, get, get to the point where uh, that you make Jesus Lord in every way. We, we have... We have become a studied culture in how to make Jesus Lord in our favorite ways, but to ignore him in so many ways. That's, that's just our, our culture, and our church hasn't broken all the way out of that by any means. So um, hopefully you understand what I'm talking about. I'm going to give us one more verse about renouncing in Acts 19, 18 through 20. Now, the context, of course, you know Acts 19, 1 through 6, when Paul comes to Ephesus and finds 12 disciples there that he thinks are Christian disciples, and it turns out they're John the Baptist, and he ends up leading them to Christ in water baptism, baptism in the Spirit, and they speak in tongues and prophesy all on the first day, not over three or four years. And um, um, then he, uh, you know, uh, you know, the... It, go, it goes on to stay in, Exodus, in, in Ephesus in that area. And then there's the, uh, the account of the seven sons of Sceva who were, uh, basically had heard about Paul's authority over demons and, and that he was doing it in the name of Jesus. However, they were not Christians and not followers of Christ, so they tried to cast out these demons. And the demons say, uh, say uh, Jesus Christ, the two Greek words for, in the English, it just says Jesus we know and Paul we know. But the English words are two different words for no. So the, he's saying, Jesus, we acknowledge and submit to. We understand the authority of his kingdom. And Paul, we've heard about this guy. Do you don't know, realize that demons in a, in a neighborhood, in a, in a city, in a region, and especially now through Facebook and so forth, they communicate with each other. You know, you're, you're, you are, you, when, you, when you do Facebook, you're, you're under demonic attack. You better realize that and be, not go there unless God has given you grace to go there. And uh, that's why I, you know, I was asked by certain leaders to be on Facebook at one time. And so I have a Facebook account, but I, it's five minutes, scan through, hit some likes, and, and uh, occasionally I post something, but I, you know, I, I don't get involved in controversial discussions, politics. It's not the place to do it. And, you know, 
Um, I'm looking forward to someday when I have more staff, someone teaching me how to delete more people <laughs> that I don't want to see. <laughs> I'm not very computer savvy, so I just have to go through whatever they give me. Don't like that. Move <laughs> And uh, so um, those who had, uh, then, then what happens is the demons, of course, jump on the guys and, be, and start beating them up after they say, Jesus, we acknowledge and submit to his authority. And Paul, we've heard about this guy. Then they beat, beat him up and he goes running out of the room. And, uh, and I've actually seen uh, situations where Christians were casting out demons and the demons were physically uh, attacking and so forth. And the, and the people who were somewhat new to the demon thing and and maybe didn't understand their authority or have much anointing, or we're having, you know, we're trying to restrain the guy physically or something like that, which you cannot do. You know, the guy with the demons in the Bible broke chains off of himself. Uh, you need to restrain them by the power of the Holy Spirit and tell them to quit, quit behaving and acting out. Uh, you know, unfortunately, we, uh, for you, for the, the time being, until we get more spiritual momentum as a church, we've kind of chosen to do deliverance sessions as a private counseling thing. We have a team of people who knows how to do it, maybe eight of us now or 10 or 12 or something like that. And, uh, we, you know, we get at least three or four of them together and we do that. But we we will, by God's grace, as this church grows, eventually we will have a, sh a television program or, or radio show that will say called be Day of Deliverance. And we will probably you know, start out with monthly and maybe someday even do a weekly deliverance night where Christians from all over can come and get help because their churches aren't giving them the basic uh, things that are in the Bible. So many, and, and then, then Paul goes on to uh, talk in Ephesus and before the riot breaks out, which is later in the chapter, this happens. Many also of those who had believed, this is right after the seven sons of Sceva incident, many of also the, those who had believed kept coming, confessing, notice that word, and disclosing, notice that word. That's, in other words, br bringing it out of the darkness. Remember, there's no hidden agendas. Their practices. And many of those who practice magic, or uh, some translations say sorcery, brought their books together and began burning them in the sight of everyone. Not in a corner. You know, we've just done this one time, but we had a big bonfire thing in the parking lot for, for uh, you know, mostly teenagers and people under 30 and uh, that brought their occult movies and occult books and, and occult T-shirts. And, uh, you know, it's amazing to me. I'll see Christians wearing, like, you know, Islamic flags on their T-shirt or whatever. Like, what? You know, like... Get a clue, like you can't have things in your possessions that are opening the doors for demonic spirits. Can't like read your horoscope and then say, well, it's not going to affect me because I don't bother it or I don't believe in it. That's nonsense. That's, you're not legally allowed to do that in the Bible. You know, just look up the word uh, astrology in the Old Testament and study it. So uh, many of those who practice magic arts brought their books and, and they burned them in the sight of everyone. I like it. And they counted up the price of them and found it to be 50,000 pieces of silver. Now, that's important because I once had a, a young man that was coming to Christ come over to my house, and, and uh, he vi was visiting, and he said, you know, God is really dealing with me about pornography. I said, well, that's great. And then he proceeded to tell me, yeah, so I have, like, uh, all my porn magazines in the trunk of my car, and I'm going to go sell them. And I'm like, wait a minute. Like, what's wrong with this picture? <laughs> You know, you can't sell your CDs that are demonic. You have to burn them. 
You can't sell your pornography. You can't, you know, you got to burn it. You can't take uh, mementos from illegal relationships and memories of them and, and, uh, and sell them. You need to, you need to burn them. Uh, so the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. Notice that part. That, why is the word of the Lord not growing mightily and prevailing in our culture? Why do we not have salt? Because we don't have uh, uh, renunciation. It's as simple as that. Most of us have not uh, spent enough time fi finding out where the, the, the flesh, the devil, and the world have, have holds, have legal holds in our life. Because we haven't confessed been contrite, re, uh, repented, and renounced. So I'm going to try to do restitution today because uh, even though I only have eight or so minutes. So let's get into that. Restitution, the act of restoring something to its original state, reparation made by giving an equivalent or compensation for loss, damage, or injury caused indemnification. The restoration of a property or rights previously taken away, conveyed, or surrendered. Restoration uh, to the former original state of position to make amends by paying back. Now, I threw, uh, can be applied to banking, relationships, property, and even mechanical engineering. I threw that in for some of all, we have so many engineering majors in our church. Uh, uh, and, you know, in plastics, when they, uh, you know, there's various kinds of plastics that can be that can be recycled and melted down and so forth. They actually uh, call that making restitution, uh, you know, because they they re reconstitute it to its original state. So, uh, let's look at some verses on restitution here. Exodus two five through six and twelve. If a man lets a lets a field or vineyard be grazed bare and lets his animal loose so that it grazes in another man's field, he shall make restitution from the best of his own field and the best of his own vineyard. Notice the best word there. Not, not, don't, you know, don't give your cheap stuff to God or to whatever God's requiring you to give or pay back. Uh, from the best of his own vineyard. If a fire breaks out and spreads to thorn bushes, so that the stack grain or the standing grain or the field itself is consumed, he who started the fire shall surely make restitution. And then there's all kinds of biblical laws about when you're responsible or not. Like if you let your ox out to gore people, and it, you knew ahead of time that he had the habit of goring people, then you were responsible, you were the murderer if your ox killed someone. Because you should have done, taken deep, gone far enough, escalated to victory to keep that ox you know, chained and and harnessed and so forth. Um, so, uh, but then it goes on to say, but if it's actually stolen from him, he shall make restitution to the owner. Now, Leviticus 5.16 says, notice that the restitution is to the whoever was the owner. Maybe someday the government will pay back all the money they stole from their people. I doubt it. Uh, that would be a move of God in the land. <laughs> but I don't know what they're going to pay it back with since they're totally living in, in deficit spend. Uh, he shall make restitution for that which he has sinned against the holy thing and shall add to it a fifth part of it. Notice that, add to it a fifth part of it. And give it to the priest. The priest shall then make atonement for him with the ram of guilt offering and it will be given him. 
Leviticus 16, 1 through 5. Then the Lord said uh, to Moses, saying that when a person sins and acts unfaithfully against the Lord and deceives his companion in regard to a deposit or a security entrusted to him or through robbery. That's why they have, um, by the way, earnest money and loans and so forth and down payments with cars and stuff. And that's why the more... Uh, ungodly and covenant breaking our culture has become is look at our marriage rate and so forth the longer the documentation when you buy a house or buy a car on any kind of credit you know we happen to be in the financing business and you have to I was training Stephen on some of our documents the other day and I uh, you have to be uh, have covered every possibility for why this person's going to break the covenant that's unfortunate, but that you know, like a man's as good as his handshake or his word is uh, not so true anymore. Uh, in regard to a deposit or a security entrusted to him, or through robbery, or if he has extorted from his companion, or has found what was lost and lied about it and sworn falsely, so that he sins in regard to any one of the things a man may do, then it shall be when he sins and becomes guilty that he shall restore what he took by robbery or what he has got by exhortation, or the deposit which is entrusted to him, or the lost thing which he found, or anything about which he swore falsely, he shall make restitution for it in the full and add to it one-fifth more. He shall give it to the one whom it belongs to on the day he presents his guilt offering. So now, keep in mind, if, if you forget this from, we've taught this many times, we do have new people and stuff. When you study the Old Testament, one of the keys to understanding it is the law of God is given in the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20 and repeated, Deuteronomy means second giving of the law, it's repeated in Deuteronomy 5. But right after Exodus 20, God begins to give us what most English Bibles translate as statutes or ordinances. And they're not exactly case studies. We have at least one lawyer in our congregation. Uh, they're not exactly case studies, which you'd study in law school, but they're hypothetical case studies because God is anticipating these are the type of things that can happen. And when cultures have been Christian, actually in, in, uh, in England, in, in, in the colonial America for the first century or two, there was a, a Christian jurist, probably the most famous jurist of all time, named William Blackstone, more than Perry Mason, sorry, hon. But uh, she loves her Perry Mason. But, uh, but uh, William Blackstone's law commentaries are still studied in law schools today. And uh, I hope, <laughs> and it's the basis of our, of our uh, English-speaking country's laws. And it was based on the statutes and ordinances of the Old Testament. All of it. The reason we have an adversarial system is well, there's a statute in Proverbs that says the first to plead his case seems just until another examines him. So the Bible's telling us, the, the, you, you know, if you can have two people with opposing point of views bringing out their, their arguments, there's more likeliness that you're going to get to the truth. And that's why we have what's called an adversarial system in our, in our legal system. So uh, the statutes are basically case laws, in a sense, or at least uh, hypothetical case laws of how all the Ten Commandments are to be applied. And the ones I just read are, are case laws uh, for, for thou shalt not steal. 
you know, if you if you work less than as efficiently and less than with a good attitude and, and less than frugally and, and so forth, you're stealing from your employer. You're defrauding. Uh, numbers 5, 5 through 7, I know some of these I, I didn't have room on your sheet, so they're just on reference. Then the Lord spoke. Uh, I, I'm just going to jump down to it. It basically goes on in verse 7 to say he makes restitution in full for his wrong and adds one-fifth to it. Now, that's why 2 Samuel 12, 5 through 7 is so important. Uh, it's in the context of after David has sinned with Bathsheba and done a whole cover-up thing to, kill, to murder Uriah the Hittite and cover the whole thing up. Uh, and Nathan the prophet is, is, uh, is confronting him and tells him a parable of a rich man that had many sheep who takes the one man's sheep <laughs> that had only one sheep and so forth. And, and when, when David hears the parable, he responds this way. Uh, he says, um, where was he? Uh, wait a minute. I, oh, yeah. Then David's anger burned greatly against the man. And he said to Nathan, in other words, he was ticked. You know, I like how the water, he was pissed. He was very angry, greatly angry, and not just a little angry. And the Lord lives, surely, as the Lord lives, surely the man who has done this deserves to die. So he must make restitution for the lamb fourfold. Now the law, if he stole four lambs, will require one extra lamb. Uh, or if he, you know, uh, or if he studied sword five, he'd add one. But David's saying you have to do four times as much. Uh, he must make restitution for the lamb fourfold. In other words, David's going to say he has to give this man who lost his lamb four of his best lambs. And because he did this thing and had no compassion, Nathan then said to David, you are the man. Uh, I wish I had time to indulge in the fact that I always point at all the Nathans and go, you got to work on your, you are the man. So I say that to your Nathan sometimes. When you grow up, make sure you know how to point your finger and go, you are the man. Uh, all right, so that's what is the context of Luke 9, 5 through 10, which I'm going to not read, but you would probably all know the story when Jesus invites himself over for lunch to Zacchaeus' house, and the Pharisees are upset that he's eating with sinners and so forth. But Zacchaeus uh, proves that he came to Christ be, because... He said, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I'll give to the poor, and if I've defrauded anyway, one, I will give back four times as much. Now, we don't understand that in his, in his culture, he was brought up to have memorized the first five books of the Old Testament and large sections of the, of, of, of the, of the rest of the Old Testament, and he would have known in, out, back, forward, and been taught on the purpose and meaning of every historical account that we call Bible stories, unfortunately, in our day. And he would have, and so Zacchaeus knows that he's going back to this incident. And he's saying, I see that my sin is so grievous. I've been a traitor to the people of God. I've collaborated with the evil Romans. I have lived completely selfishly and even at the point of exploiting my fellow man. I will pay four times back as much. I've actually had Christians in the past tell me that restitution is not a biblical concept. Uh, you, you need to make restitution in relationships, finances, uh, wherever you've stolen time, money, uh, valuable things, 
and or even uh, you know had misused relationships. Amen.